to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans back on Black Sabbath, along with very special guest Jim Florentine. This is part three of a four-part series, and we'll be covering Technical Ecstasy, through Mob Rules, 1976 to 1981. Not everyone's favorite era musically, but there is some indisputably interesting shit going down during that era, that's for sure. So if you're tuning in for the first time, let's get you all caught up on what's going on with the show. I just quit my job a few weeks ago while putting the Pavement series together because I do it all which requires stupid amounts of time. Everything from obtaining the guests, doing all the social media, all the recording and editing, you name it. And I love it, I'd have it no other way. The last six weeks of my career as a hearing instrument specialist was spent literally editing and promoting the Pavement series eight and a half hours a day, nonstop, until there was nothing left to do but leave. So why am I telling you this? because I'm doubling down on Discograffiti. My wife and three-year-old son are doubling down on Discograffiti. We're selling our house and planning on living as frugally as possible on the East Coast, and all of that just to ensure that Discograffiti is the standard bearer for all that's awesome about music. So don't go anywhere when this episode's done. Subscribe. Coming up, we have four fucking weeks of Jim Florentine rating Black Sabbath, then two weeks of Randy Randall from No Age rating Jesus Lizard, Sergio Diaz from Os Mutantes rating his own early work, and on and on and on, way into the future. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Join our Facebook group, Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter too, in case you don't mess with the Zuck. Also, please rate the podcast five stars along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're listening to the show on good old Amazon Music or Spotify or anywhere else for that matter. It'll help a lot. You can find the link to our legendary playlist in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. And if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed, it's the ultimate music deep dive. I post three shows a week. The main show on Sunday, Discograffiti's The Private Press with Paul Major on Tuesdays, and a Thursday wildcard episode, which is either an interview with that week's guest or one of our other offshoot shows like Rock Cousteau, Queasy Listening, and Battle Royale. So hey, try it for a month. You've got nothing to lose. Okay, back to business. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discograffiti is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We're not just covering albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and bootlegs. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between zero and five, which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. And away we go then with Jim Florentine as we enter the qualitatively fucked up musical territory that is Sabbath in 76 and then sit back and watch in amazement as against all odds they turn the fucking ship around. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
Here we go. Okay, so now we're in a new phase, unfortunately. I call this one phase three, sliding into total fucking oblivion, 1976 to 79. 1976, we have Technical Ecstasy, their seventh album produced by Tony again, released on September 25th, 76. So this was kind of a weird one. First of all, they went to Miami. They went to Criteria Studios for the making of Technical Ecstasy, which is famous for the Bee Gees. So taking it out of England or L.A., I think that really changed things for these guys. Yeah, but I think they, I, you know, when I think they did the Heaven and Hell record down there, too, at the same studio. But this is they're in a really weird frame of mind at this time. I also think they were not really they weren't really getting it. They weren't really seeing themselves for what was really happening. They didn't really understand where they were as a band. And I think also if you're in Miami and it's, you know, the sunlight is beaming down from all sides, it's it's kind of hard to maintain a, a doom and darkness kind of vibe. Right. In the July 2001 issue of Guitar World, uh, a writer named Dan Epstein wrote, These se the sessions proved extremely relaxing for everyone except Tony Iommi, who was left to oversee the production while the others sunned themselves on the beach. You know, Iommi explained to the same magazine back in 92, we recorded the album in Miami and nobody, nobody would take responsibility for the production. No one wanted to bring in an outside person for help and no one wanted the whole band to produce it, so they left it all to me. So what's going on at this point in history, just in general, punk was coming in fast and suddenly Sabbath found themselves both unsure of their musical direction and labeled as has-beens. Geezer said, yeah, it's not like now, if you're a heavy metal band, you put out a heavy metal album. But back then you had to at least try to be modern and keep up. So punk was massive then. And we felt that our time had come and gone. So these guys are starting to feel like they don't matter anymore. You know, Ozzy, uh, in his autobiography, he's uh, talking about how in the studio, Tony was always saying, we've got to sound like Foreigner or we've got to sound like Queen. But I thought it was strange that the bands that we'd once influenced were now influencing us. He was also talking about how he'd lost the plot with the booze and the drugs during the recording of Technical Ecstasy. And when he came back to England, he actually checked himself in to an asylum. Yeah, I mean, he was having some problems at the time. He left the band briefly, and that's when Dave Walker joined for like two weeks. Right. And they did a song on top of the pops, but then he came back. But if you see some pictures around that time, Ozzy was wearing a shirt that said Blizzard of Oz. So right. he's already thinking right. about his solo band at the time. Now, was he? Is that what that meant at that time? I know he was, you know, had come up with the phrase, but was he already thinking about going solo? Well, yeah, I mean, well, he left the band. You know, he left the band briefly in the middle of recording. I forgot what song they did on the top of the pops, maybe or something with Dave Walker. But yeah, he was ready to leave. He was unhappy. Yeah, yeah. And then he came back to the band. But he, yeah, I remember it's, you know, this old picture. It's, uh, it's, ju it's Junior's Eyes. Junior's Eyes, right. Of which yeah, yeah. you often never say die. So maybe it was right. after Technical Ecstasy then. It was. Yeah, I, I got the timeline wrong on so, that. Technical Ecstasy is 76 and right. uh, Walker is late 77. Okay, so then it wasn't. So, but yeah, he was definitely, you know, but he was wearing a Blizzard of Eyes shirt around this time when this album was, was being recorded and some pictures and stuff. So yeah, he yeah. wasn't happy then. 
Yeah, it's interesting hearing the band talk about this period. You know, Geezer says, again, to Guitar World, that was the beginning of the end, that one. We were managing ourselves because we couldn't trust anybody. Everybody was trying to rip us off, including the lawyers we'd hired to get us out of our legal mess. It was really just getting to us around then, and we didn't know what we were doing. And obviously, the music was suffering. You could just feel the whole thing falling apart. While the band are recording this record, of all fucking people, the Eagles were right next door recording Hotel California. And so before we could, uh, this is <laughs> Geezer talking, before we could start recording, we had to scrape all the cocaine out of the mixing board. I think they had left about a pound of cocaine in the board. Let's talk about that cover art. I feel like the cover art is indicative of just as much as anything else about how fucking shitty the album was. So the and Ozzy famously once described it as two robots screwing on an escalator. And it's actually the perfect explanation of what the album cover is. But when I think of robots fucking, I think of, uh, you know, doggy style. Like, like, I think of robots in a porn. I don't think of two robots on two distinctly different escalators that are shooting jizz five feet away from each other. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a good album cover. It's just weird, but I'm like, yeah. it didn't oh. really bother me. I'm like, I didn't go, I go, this is just strange. And if you open the inside album sleeve was weird. They had more of that kind of artwork in it. And it was definitely probably just some abstract art or something like that. I didn't really get it, but it didn't really bother me that much. But it, like we were saying before, if they're going to say the Sabotage album was one of the worst album covers. This, I, to, to, to me, this is worse. Oh, this is, this is way worse. I mean, I will say that if I ever sat down and intentionally tried to jerk off to robots fucking, there's no way I could actually reach completion if they don't touch. They got it. The robots. Well, just say you might even think about doing that to robots is weird. <laughs> yes, it is. But yeah. they're, putting me, they're putting me in a position where I have no choice. All right, well. How am I going to reach fruition with robots who aren't even touching? Yeah, this is a very, very odd record. It's really them trying to sound like uh, like they belong on the radio. I mean, they're just trying to... There's nothing wrong with a band trying to make a radio-friendly rock record, but it's very weird that you have, like... For example, Rock and Roll Doctor is very obviously a bad kiss imitation. Like, I don't know why it sounded like a good idea for them to be doing kiss imitations. Uh, this is not the kind of band that you'd want doing that. But I will say that the first song on the record, I think is awesome. I love Backstreet Kids. Backstreet Kids is great. You know, I've always been back and forth with this record. And a few months ago, I had a long car ride at night. So I wanted to keep myself up. I said, I'm going to go, I'm listening to technolacity and never say die back to back. I'm going to crank it. Wait, was this, how long ago was this? Like three months ago. Okay. So, so I hadn't yet reached out to Meredith, right? No, you haven't. But I just said, I needed something to listen to. I had a five hour car ride, like in the right. middle of the night. And I go, I need something to keep me up. And I go, I want to go back to these two records and just let them play and listen to them in the order of the songs. Right. I just, you know, we listened to them and I really got a new appreciation for both of them. I never not liked both of them. They weren't in my top two or five of the classic Sabbath records, but I had, I got a new appreciation for both of those records. I don't think they're terrible, but something that, that Tony said about it, it really kind of nails it. So Sabbath fans generally don't like much of Techno Ecstasy, 
but it was really a no-win situation for us. If we had stayed the same, people would have said we were still doing the same old stuff. So we tried to get a little more technical, and it just didn't work out very well. That's basically what it came down to. Yeah, but you know what? If they would have, if they would have made Sabotage Part Two, I would have loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. think that well, I don't think yeah. the Sabbath fans would have gone. Oh man, they did the, It's the same album. Or right. if it sounds just like Master Reality, I think they would have loved it. I think Tony just said, hey, man, you know, we got to do a different sounding record every time. There's just way, there's way too many keyboards on this record. The first thing you have to do if you want to have any success in enjoying this record is to appreciate the, and accept the fact that this is hard rock and it's not metal. True. And that's, right. a, that's okay, but you just have to accept that. If you judge it on its own merits, a song like Backstreet Kids is a really good song. And obviously they knew it too. The fire is definitely dampened and tempered a little bit, but it makes it no less excellent on its own terms. I love Backstreet Kids. It's going on the playlist. That's great. Black Backstreet Kids is great to open the record. You Won't Change Me is a different story entirely. I mean, this- See, now I love that song. Really? Okay, so I, I do not like that song. To me, that's the sound of way too much drugs. Probably, but I don't know. For some reason, it's just really... It's a strong, like it's, it was one I forgot for a long time. And then I, I picked it, I started listening to it. I'm like, man, this is good. Cause you just kind of, I just remember going over that track, like skipping that track for a long time. And then it just, I don't know, Ozzy's vocals in it and the words and all that stuff. It's just a, uh, I really like it a lot. It's like a great little, great ballad. This one doesn't do it at all for me. Plus it never ends. It's like almost seven minutes long. Is that how long it is? Wow. Yeah, it's 642. So then we go, we go on to it's all right, which is a very weird song. Like what in the fuck is going on here? It sounds like Herman's hermits to me. Uh, this one's written and sung by Bill Ward. I love Bill and I don't think it's a good fit for the band. I do think it's better than, than the song preceding it. Almost anything is, but, uh, it's not a Sabbath song. It's just, it's, it's a Bill Ward song. I don't know. To me, I always liked this song and I like that Bill sang it. I don't know. You know, Sabbath always did weird stuff and put weird songs on this, a weird song. The Guns N' Roses live era, 87, 93, those live albums they put out. Yeah. Yeah. Axel sings this right before he goes in the November rain because he loved no it. Shit. I did yeah. not know that. That is yeah, cool. the live version of November rain right before it goes. It, 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 he sings it's all right on the piano. That's pretty cool. It's I, great. Look, and Axel always said, Axel said this is like one of his favorite Sabbath records. Like when he was a kid, this is the first one he got turned on to was Techno Ecstasy. So I like this song for some reason. It's, it's, it's weird. It's cheesy. I actually like the song. I just think uh, as a as a participating member of a Sabbath album, it's so way out in left field. It's it's probably the least likely Sabbath song ever. I mean, including all the, the albums that came after. So, you know, I, I look at it like they probably had the song and Ozzy was missing for three days, drunk. They couldn't find him. He was on a drug binge and they go, yeah. Bill, just sing it. And Ozzy came in and goes, ah, fine, I don't care. You could sing that one. Let's move on to the next song. I want to get the fuck out of here. Right. That's what I'm I think- thinking. By all accounts, at this point, Ozzy really was not an experimenter, apparently. Some of the tunes, like there was one especially on Never Say Die, where he was just like, fuck this. Oh, Breakout. Yeah. He, wouldn't, he wouldn't sing it. He just said, this sounds like a fucking jazz band. I want nothing to do with this. Yeah. I think it was one of those where he was like, has a very defined idea of what Black Sabbath is. Tony probably had a very different idea because he's bringing in all the embellishments. Ozzy just wanted to be a metal band. From everything that I've researched, that's what it sounds like. 
what what the issue was. And so then we were on to Gypsy, which is really, really tepid. First of all, it did not sound like Black Sabbath. This sounds like, you know, like something that would be on a 38 special uh, outtakes record or something. Or like uh, White Lion's Wait. If that song really? really seriously, yeah, you think so? You know, I, I, I know I, I always like the intro to the song. I like the drums, and then I remember so, reading someone. Someone goes, "Those lyrics are so corny." Like, who the hell came up with those lyrics? And I never really realized that. I'm like, yeah, they kind of are, but I don't know. I, I don't. I never mind this song. I didn't. I didn't mind it. I, I didn't think it was a. It doesn't hold up to you know under the sun or tomorrow's dream or something like that. But it was. It, fits the record i never thought it was like a pop song like a, a white lion wade or a 38 special song it just as i'm listening to it i'm thinking what are they going for here like what are they trying to achieve right i, I came up empty-handed i mean the only thing i could think of that they were trying to achieve is to fill out an album with some songs but yeah I no that's true I didn't get any kind of like where they were coming from but i'm guessing that these guys were all completely lost as yeah people. At this point, you know, you're you're traveling all over the world, going to different studios, playing gigs. Then the the drugs, I'm guessing by this point, have severed a connection to reality. So they're floating through time and space and in their minds. They, they don't know who they are, or what they want anymore, I'm guessing. And if it hasn't happened 100 percent by this point, it certainly will have happened by the next record. But that's side one. Side one, there's there's not a ton going for it in, from where I sit. Uh, side two even less so uh, all moving parts stand still immediately to me sounds like a shitty more synthetic hair metalized revamp of the sweet leaf melody i never thought of that it's got like a similar kind of vibe with the riff but it, it's got like a rainbow room sort of redux vibe of that which i don't like the idea of the rainbow and black sabbath being melded together it's too spandexy well i mean you know if it's 1977 or 76 there's no real hair metal yet. Right. I, I just mean that vibe, which was kind right. of, you know. Yeah, or, or, yeah, almost like a, a rainbow vibe. You were at the show, but, or, or you were at one of those shows, but apparently Van Halen wiped the fucking stage with Black Sabbath. Uh, in, no, they didn't. They that's didn't. a lie. Is I it was really? there. That was yeah, there. So, so tell me about that, because that's a, the common knowledge is that. So how is that? How is that not the case? What okay, you... first, first of all, I was at the show in 1978. Van Halen opened for him. The album Van Halen, the first Van Halen record, came out in March of '78. Right. August of '78, they were already like a month or two into the tour. Van Halen had like "You Really Got Me" was playing on the radio. And I think maybe they were on to the second song, which maybe it was running with the devil. Other than that, nobody knew who Van Halen was. They were doing 40 minutes or 30, 40, 40 maybe 45 minutes, whatever the first album, maybe, maybe it only did 30. I don't know. Opening for Sabbath. We bought the record, me and my older brothers, because we're like, oh, this band Van Halen's opening. Let's listen to the record. So we, if we see the first band, we know some songs. I asked Iomi on that metal show, if Sabbath blew him off the stage, I mean, if uh, Van Halen blew off the stage, because I don't remember that. He goes, and I would, I'd admit it. I totally would. I go, you don't, you didn't see people walking out when you guys were on. He goes, nope. Hmm. And I was there, and we got in there early for Van Halen too, and we knew most of the songs, but most of the crowd had no idea. Do you remember being surprised by Van Halen? Did they make a huge impression on you? Were no. no, they didn't. They were, they were the opening band, and uh, back then, especially, all the bands always 
you know, mess with, uh, n- not directly maybe from Sabbath, but the sound was always shitty for the opening band. It wasn't right, great. Right. On purpose, yeah. On purpose, they always yeah. did that, which is so, so wrong. I can't believe they, you know, they'd get away with that. So Van Halen, you know, when they came out, they had a small part of the stage. Yeah, they were moving around and stuff like that, but. And that's probably the same shit now. I mean, I'm guessing they still do that kind of crap now. They give them the crappy monitors. They give yeah, them, but most of the band, I'm telling you, most of the, the arena, the guard, Madison Square Garden, had no idea who Van Halen was. Hmm. They got a decent response on "You Really Got Me" and maybe one other song. Like I said, the album was only out; it wasn't even six months yet, right? You know, and then they put, they went over to England and toured Van Halen tour with Sabbath later that year. I don't think an American band over in England in 1978 was blowing you know legendary sabbath off the stage that's just a myth that they were a young up-and-coming band and they were 20 years old and sabbath was all drugged out yeah i mean that dinosaur myth has been has really been promulgated over time to where that's i know and uh, like i said no one ever you know they didn't sell three million records by the time they were opening for sabbath they were a brand new band that you know they started playing a cover song at a kinks on the radio you really got me and they were maybe on their second single at the time. So, and they didn't say, they didn't have three million sold under their belt when they, oh, we got to go see the opening band. Forget Sabbath. So you have no recollection of any kind of amazing pyrotechnics that were going on on stage between uh, between Dave and Eddie or anything like that. It was just just an opening band, just another opening band, just another opening band. I mean, look, but I knew most of the, I knew the record because you know we wanted to get get it for the opening band. That's how we discovered Motorhead when they were right. opening for Ozzy. I'm like, we got oh this band Motorhead. I got to go get the record because I want to see who what they sound like, you know, became an instant fan, but they weren't these mega, it wasn't Van Halen. If it was a Van Halen two tour, when everybody knew the whole first record and it was a masterpiece, right? then maybe I could see it, but there wasn't enough time for everyone, every stone or black Sabbath fan. It was just the whole place was just covered smoke, weed smoke. Just yeah. a bunch of stoners that love Sabbath. And, you know, Sabbath still put on a good show. It's good to hear that, actually, because it really has become not just accepted myth, but almost kind of tipped over into fact at this point. I'm sure there were some shows where, you know, they're like, man, that band was better, you know, like, uh, but, yeah. but that, like I said, maybe later in the tour, like I said, over in England, it was later in the year. So maybe there was three or four singles released, but that was over right. in England. They weren't so keen on American bands back then. There's obviously, you know, Trouble in Paradise, but it's good to know that didn't really hit the concert stage and seriously i asked tony on that metal show on tv if that happened and yeah. he said i would admit it i don't you know I, we've gotten blown off stage he yeah, goes, yeah. you know they used to get booed off stage opening for kiss or kiss would open for them and then they go on and the crowds hated them because they all came to see kiss what is your take on kiss i never got into them not even alive nope I just my, my, maybe because my brothers were never into them. So, yeah, yeah. and then when I tried to later on, it, this stuff sounds, sounds dated. It does sound dated. And it's, you know, it's funny. There's no bands like that anymore where you're singing about groupies. And uh, man, that would, that stuff would not go over well right now at all. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't even think about the lyrics. I just think the, the songs just were like, eh. Yeah. I don't know. It just didn't have any oomph to them. I don't know. Stuff like Deuce and Strutter uh, to me is t- just timeless rock and roll songs, but they're more a business than they're a band. Yeah. Yeah. I just never got it. That was a band like, a, a band like Thin Lizzy, I never got into, mm-hmm. and I get into them later in life, and they're unbelievable. Yeah. Like they have so many good songs. Mm-hmm. You can go back; they stand the test of time, and they're great. Yeah. You try to go back for Kiss, it just doesn't work. They don't hold up the songs to me. 
Yeah, I, I understand. I, I do like the debut and uh, Destroyer, and then Alive is one of the greatest concert albums of all time, I think. But it's hard to defend their stuff because any anything that uh, that people have to say about them that's negative is is all very valid it's all all i got no problem with the band at all you know maybe if when i was a kid if i got into them it would have made sense and it's still i know i liked them as a kid so i still like them there's some of those 80s bands i'm like like that but i just never did so i missed a boat on them when i should have been my in my childhood prime yeah it's okay to to miss the boat on kiss in the 80s is what we call a godsend I, li- I didn't mind the 80s stuff when they took the makeup off with the MTV era. Like that stuff, I was like, oh, it's all right. Lick it up. That wasn't bad. Yeah, I, I mean, like, it was commercial. I like but lick it, w- it up. It was okay, that stuff they put out in the 80s. When I inevitably do Kiss, the playlist is going to be blank after 1980. After Lick It Up. That's the last song. Well, they had some cheese, like, let's put the X in sex. Yeah, that is garbage, man. Uh, Yeah, that's terrible. Terrible. Yeah, that's like, I would rather listen to Poison. That's that's bad. That's really yeah. bad. So. so then then speaking of bad, rock and roll doctor, not as really as generic a stab at hard rock as the title implies. You know what? I never when you don't see it and then you, you, you have someone from the outside pick it apart. You go, you know, you're right. It's kind of like that song fits on this album. It yeah. wouldn't fit on yeah. the other record, but it's it is kind of cheesy and it is kind of like silly. But I never noticed that. It's one of the only songs by them that I really wish they hadn't done. It's it's so generic. Yeah, no, you're right. I can't defend that one. Yeah, I'm always looking for for ways of trying to include these two records in the canon, but it's just not on the same level. Uh, She's Gone is yet another reminder. It's, you know, string-laden ballad should have been in other changes. It just wasn't. It's it stands at the opposite end of effectiveness. As far as the the spectrum of ballad effectiveness, n- no thanks to She's Gone. Yeah, I mean, you know, you don't need two. You got You you Won't Change right. Me, which isn't completely a ballad, but it's pretty much uh, yeah. considered a ballad. So you probably didn't need She's Gone on there. Yeah, and you only have the eight songs there. And Right, it's, yeah, it's kind of throw. It's kind of a throwaway one, yeah. It's, this record's a, what I, it's a 7-10 split. The, the, the very first song and the very last song are to me the only keepers on the record. Dirty Women is again with the Rainbow Room reference, but Rainbow Room style sleaze metal. It's also disturbingly the second best song on the album. Um, the double bass, Bill Ward's double bass is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, when he kicks the, in, no, I, I mean, I like this song. You know, I like all moving parts too. That song. You do like that? Yeah, I don't know why. I do. I wasn't able to kind of to find my way in on that uh, on that one this yeah. time. Yeah. I get it. But yeah, Dirty Women is great. And they brought this song back when Sabbath got back together and we do it right. on tour and it went over played, but it was so good. Yeah, the the recording on the on the live record is is fantastic. Yeah. Look, this album's legendary for being a massive step down from the initial five album imperial phase. <clears throat> so the turn from deep dark metal to generic hard rock, I'm guessing was a little bit stunning at the time. And if you're listening to the albums in order, like 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 Jim and I have, it's stunning today too that they would choose this road to explore as a unit. It quite obviously doesn't work for them. And yet sadly, it's the better of their two final albums arguably of their original incarnation as a band that being said there's only one i think there's only one very good song one decent song and a shitload of turds i give it one and a half stars and i think that's being generous wow one and a half damn yep i i give it three and a half really yeah 
Wow, you really love Sabbath. I give it a, a you know a seven, seven and a quarter on a scale of one to ten. I've always given it that number, so that's probably yeah, yeah. Two and a half stars. What do you think about the zero to five? Do you like zero to ten better? I like ten better, but the five works. So at the end of this thing, like we said before, Ozzy was admitted to uh, to an asylum, Stafford County Asylum in Britain. Here's where uh, Dave Walker comes in, and it's a very odd little pocket in their history. Not many people know about it. Basically what happened is in late 77, while they're rehearsing for the next record, and just days before the band was was set to enter the studio, Osborne just abruptly quit. And uh, Tony called uh, Dave Walker, who was a longtime friend of the band, had previously been a member of uh, Fleetwood Mac during a, a similarly lost phase in, in their history. I think the record was Penguin that he was on, which is actually a, a decent Fleetwood Mac record. And Tony informed him that that Ozzy had left the band. Walker, who at that time was fronting a band called Mistress, he flew to Birmingham from California in late 77 to write material and rehearse with the, with the band. And um, on January 8th, 1978, Sabbath made their only live performance with Walker on vocals, playing an early version of Junior's Eyes on the BBC program Look Here. And Walker has said that he wrote a lot of lyrics during his brief time in the band, but none of them were ever used. <clears throat> if any recordings of this version of the band other than the Look Here footage still exist, Walker says he's not aware of them. Ozzy initially set out to form a solo project featuring former Dirty Tricks members John Fraser Binney, Terry Horbury, and Andy Bjorn. Man, those are some very difficult names to pronounce. As the new band were in rehearsals in January 78, Ozzy had to change a heart and rejoin the band. But he had stipulations. Do you know what the stipulations were? No, I don't. Ozzy wanted to come back in the band, but he wouldn't sing on any of the stuff that the band had written with Walker. So basically, they had to ditch everything that they had done. They went into the studio with no songs. So that explains Never Say Die. They would write in the morning so they could rehearse and record at night and they could never get time to reflect on anything they had done because uh it they had to move so quickly that's why i never say die was doomed from the start so well, i know they went up i know they went up to toronto and did it it was the freezing cold and like january yes. and they were miserable it's like why did they record it up there it's so fucking funny that they would be going through everything that they were going through and then purposely decide to put themselves through hell like that maybe it was better that they wanted to keep ozzy on the straight and narrow where he couldn't go outside and wander you don't want to be in miami doing coke be right. on south beach and stuff like that so maybe let's go to toronto and some friggin' freezing up there so we just right. uh, isolated like almost like the shining movie. yeah 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 it sounds like that's exactly what happened this is the last uh released in september 78 the last studio album with the band's original lineup uh, until 13. Actually, no, the last one ever. Last one ever. No Bill Ward on that one. Yeah. Um, also, uh, the last one, uh, yeah, the last one to feature Ozzy until 2013. Uh, there were two singles on this, the title track and Hard Road. Um, let's talk about the recording of it first before we get into the, the actual songs. <clears throat> At this point, they were drinking and drugging like fucking crazy. And uh, Bill Ward had to sing on Swing in the Chain because Ozzy refused to sing it. Uh, Ozzy also refused to sing on Breakout, like we talked about before, uh, which is why it's instrumental. Apparently, it was not supposed to be that. All the songs with Walker 
were redone, including Junior's Eyes, which was rewritten to be about the then recent death of Ozzy's dad. Yeah, what Ozzy said in his in I Am Ozzy, no one really talked about what had happened. I just turned up in the studio one day. I think Bill had been trying to act as peacemaker on the phone, and that was the end of it. But it was obvious things had changed, especially between me and Tony. I don't think anyone's heart was in it anymore. So, yeah. Toronto. Uh, as Tony says, we went through Toronto to record it, and that's when the problems started. Why Toronto? Because of the tax, really. The studio was booked through brochures because people thought it might be a good one. We got there, and it had a dead sound. So what we had to do was rip the carpet up and try to make it as live as we could. They were okay about it, but it took time to get it exactly right. There were no other studios available. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a bummer. The sound of this record really does suck. It sounds so flat. But oddly, you know, the band isn't even completely down on this record. Bill, in, uh, in the liner notes to the uh, 1998 Reunion Live album, Ward says, in the circumstances, I thought we did the best we could. We were taking care of business ourselves. We didn't have millions from the record company yet. And despite the booze and Ozzy's departure, we tried to experiment with jazz and stuff the way we had in the early days. Songs like Johnny Blade and Air Dance, I still like. But uh, Osborne totally disagrees. He basically thinks this album's a piece of shit. He, he said with, with tracks like Breakout, we might as well have been called Slack Haddock, not Black Sabbath. <laughs> I love that. Um, all right, let's get down to the music here. So Never Say Die, the worst, most generic fucking riff you've ever heard leads off the whole record. Whenever there's a lack of enthusiasm with any kind of project, you know, they, they try to kind of redistribute the enthusiasm or overcompensate by adding exclamation points. Yeah. So they, they couldn't even bother with, you know, the album titles got the exclamation point. They even left it off the song title. They just, they knew to keep it off unless fans mistakenly believe that they're actually passionate about this tripe. I like this song. I knew you were going to say that. I was hoping you were going to say that. Tell me why you like it. I don't know. It just starts the album off, uh, you know, title track. I've always, I've always liked um I like the little breakdown in the middle. I, I never really noticed it of being a generic riff. But no, I, I always I had never had a problem with this song. It's one of the better songs on the record. I'm going to say overall, I think there's two great songs on the record and one one that's halfway decent. And I don't like any of the other ones. I think uh, Over to You and Hard Road are fantastic. Over to You's, I mean, uh, Hard Road is unbelievable. Hard Road, I love. Hard Road, the lyrics in Hard Road, I used to listen to that all the time, like when I was first doing, you know, starting a comedy in my career and just trying to get to the next level and stuff. That was an inspiring song for me. Nice. Yeah, I can see that. I love Hard Road. Hard Road is awesome. No one really talks about how great that song is. I feel like that could have that could and should have been a big hit. Yeah, I know. For some reason, I just think at that point it was maybe it was uh, too I late mean, for them. I don't know, but it should have been a big hit. Yeah, like that could have been a hit in the same way that fucking Foreigners Cold as Ice was a hit. Not a metal hit, but just a hit. I guess you know, radio was radio really going to play a hard road at that point? They weren't playing any Sabbath stuff. So I've always loved the song, and I feel like hard road would have been the way forward for them if they'd stayed in this template right yeah true look at the rest of the side i mean you're gonna disagree with me which is which is fantastic johnny blade totally generic hard rock with fucking bullshit synth flourishes junior's eyes it just feels like bullshit to me they were just filling out a record 
I love I love Johnny Blade. That's actually my, the name of my LLC company. Um, nice. Yeah, the synthesize a little weird. I mean, the lyrics are kind of you know we're fighting and knives and stuff like that. But I don't know. It's it works for me. Junior's eyes. The lyrics. Ozzy actually helped write the lyrics with Geezer on that one because his father was dying at the time. Yeah, so yeah. It's a, it has a whole special meaning to it. So I love that song, Junior's Eyes. Just thinking about Ozzy going through that torture of his dad dying which Zach Wilde did a great version, a cover version of Junior's Eyes on the piano. If you ever could, if you track it down, it's really good. Wow, I didn't know that. It's better than the original version. It's like you, you get chills from it. So I always like Junior's Eyes too. So this is, look, this is why I love doing this show. Uh, you know, I'm not only incredibly interested in listening to every single thing that's ever been made, but I want to be bitch slapped and, and told my ears are not working correctly. This record, I've tried so many times to get there and I've just never gotten there with the final two here. This, this, you know, this this era is just hard for me. Shockwave, I feel like is, is halfway OK. I love that song. It's great. Aerodance. No, I don't like Aerodance. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that like, feels like elevator jazz to me. Yeah, it's not that good. No. Over to you The is the other great song on the record other than Hard Road. Uh, it's amazing that they even pulled off two. However, nothing more to me than a, than a well-written pop song. Yeah, I like Over to You. Um, I definitely like Johnny Blade and Junior's Eyes better, but I like Over to You. Over to You is pretty good, but I, I like, you know, Shockwave, Johnny Blade, Never Say Die, and um, Junior's Eyes are, are better than Over to You. How about Swinging the Chain? Do you like that uh, one? Uh, no. So that was that's Bill singing, right? Yeah. The song's about Ozzy. Not my favorite song on the record for sure, but just interesting from an autobiographical point of view on the on their end. Aside from the songs that I that I mentioned that I like, I think the rest of the record truly is terrible. It reaches depths that even technical ecstasy didn't plumb. I feel like there are more good songs on this one, but the low points are lower on this one. It's not an album I'd recommend, but it's also not as bad as people say. I would give it one and three quarter stars. So it's less than, oh, it's a little it, more. It's actually than a little bit higher than Technical Ecstasy. All right, you know, I'm going to give it three, three and a half stars. And it's, and it's uh, yeah, I'd give it a three and a half stars. I give you my word, Jim. I'm not done on trying to reassess these two records. No, no. Look, I, I get it. You know, they, you know, c compared to what they released earlier, how do you, you know, compared to these it's like you can't you know if you're just talking energy and passion all you got to do is throw on neon nights and then you see oh yeah yeah these guys have been sleeping for a few years right and or blizzard of oz right exactly exactly they needed reinvigoration yeah it leads us to phase four d over you see what i did there 1979 to 1982 so 1980 is heaven and hell Let's talk about the circumstances that led us up to that. The initial sessions for what became Heaven and Hell began with Ozzy after the conclusion of Never Say Die after that tour. They convened in L.A. for 11 months to record a new album. And Tony Iommi described that as a highly frustrating, never-ending process. Ozzy stated that he became fed up with the experimentation on all the rest of the latter-day records. Iomi actually talks about having a recording featuring Ozzy singing an early version of what would become Children of the Sea with different lyrics and a totally different vocal melody. In 79, 
Dio was introduced to Tony Iommi by Sharon. Did you know that? Yes. Which I think is pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. So initially, Dio and Iommi discussed forming a different band. They met again by chance at the Rainbow in LA later that year, and both guys were in very similar situations. Dio was looking for a new project. Iommi needed a vocalist, and we have some chocolate and peanut butter shit going on. Dio came over to Tony's place for a relaxed getting to know you jam session right on that first day. They finished Children of the Sea. I'm guessing you're a huge Dio fan in general. No. You're not? No. I mean, I like him, but I wasn't a huge Dio fan. Huh. Bill was actually, even back in those early days of 79 and 80, was not completely happy with the direction they were moving in. What he says is Heaven and Hell, for me, wasn't a turning point. Heaven and Hell was the beginning of a new band of which I had no idea what band I was in. It was almost like Ron was capable of coming up with lyrics that seemed to fit his idea of how Black Sabbath ought to be. And I sensed the kind of unrealness about the lyrics. What's your take on the Dio era? I didn't want, I was an Aussie guy when the split happened. I was totally on Aussie's side. I hated that he was thrown out of the band, that he fired him. Um, Heaven and Hell came out before Blizzard of Oz, like six months before. Mm hmm. I wanted to hate the record, but I couldn't because it's great. I guess I, I maybe heard Dio on Long Live Rock and Roll, maybe, but I wasn't too familiar with him at the time. I know a little about him. This record came out. I'm like, you know what? I mean, it's I can't I can't knock it because it's really good. Yeah, it really is. And and by the way, same with me. I'm not like a massive Dio fan or anything. I don't dislike him. It's just very histrionic. Uh, very overblown, affected, and dramatic. Very much not like Ozzy. The thing that really sums it up best, as far as the stylistic differences between the two guys, Tony said, Ozzy would sing with the riff. Just listen to Iron Man and you'll catch my drift. His vocal melody line copies the melody of the music. But Ronnie liked singing across the riff instead of with it come up with a melody that was different from that of the music. I don't want to sound like I'm knocking Ozzy, but Ronnie's approach opened up a new way for me to think. So, Neon Nights. This is such a wildly good song. It's my favorite song of the Dio Sabbath era. It's a great opener. It's a great track on this record. Great way to open the record to like, you know, the Sabbath fan at the time going, oh man, all right, there's a new singer. Let's see what they got. And this is the first right. track they hear. Right. Was, was perfect to do not my favorite track on the record but it, it's a, it's great and they totally try to copy it with turn up the night on mob rules yes and it's okay because turn up the night is fucking awesome yes so just by dint of its energy and overall sound and vibe i think it's a fucking mission statement it just comes out of the gate charging and it's got its own energy it's got its own thrash metal vibe to it, and it walks its own plank to refreshing and rejuvenating waters for the band. I really love it. And Children of the Sea, too. Children of the Sea is great. There's, you know, you can't, there's nothing bad you could say about that song either. It's a great song. Right. I mean, it lumbers more. I don't really like the lumbering as much as I like just a, like a hardcore charge, but it lumbers more successfully than Ozzy had been lumbering for quite some time. And the end where he screams, look out is that's great. I love that. Then comes lady evil, which uh, I think is kind of shitty. I love geezer's bass in the beginning. That was another one. Like I never, someone pointed that out. The lyrics are kind of cheesy and it's kind of cheesy. It's almost like when they say about rock and roll doctor, I'm like, you know, what? I mean, yeah. you got a point. The whole thing where it's like, she's a magical, mystical woman. It's, yeah. It's it, kind of doesn't really, that's not you know, sad. Way better songs on this record than that. 
So. Yeah, yeah, and the and the riff at the core of it is a very pedestrian guitar center style thing, like some dude sitting in guitar center just fucking around. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. Dio kind of adds that Renaissance fair thing, but he also adds a grabbing your penis while you sing kind of deal. The style worked for him, but I was never like a big fan of that style of singing. It's almost reminds me like a kind of like a Bruce Dickinson from Maiden. I love Bruce. Dick- I, I love him. Do you like uh, Maiden? I do. I do like, but, you know, it was different than the earlier records, the first two with Paul Diano. They were oh, almost yeah, like yeah. a punk band. Yeah, yeah. It's a completely different thing. He was completely unaffected. Yeah. Heaven and Hell is a great song. It's great. You can't, you can't say it. It's a masterpiece, this it song. It really is. I love this, the line, sing me a song, you're a singer. It could be the dumbest lyric I've ever heard in my life. And yet somehow it is just so, it's so, so awesome. Yeah. Really good song. Uh, and as close as they ever got to successfully assimilating Prague. Yeah, true. Yeah. Thank God for you. Even if you hated Dio and you're mad that he was in a band, you could, you like that. That's a great song. Is there any Prague that you like? No, not really. I mean, you're like a meat and potatoes kind of guy. So if a song is like veering left, right, and all over the place, it's just hard for you to connect with. One of the simplest bands ever. ACDC is one of my favorite bands. So yeah, yeah. So wishing now we're on the second side. So wishing well always struck me as a dumb song. That's a skipper. It wasn't bad. It wasn't killer, but I, I didn't mind the song wishing well. I love every other song on the side. Just not that one. Die Young is a furious gallop. Love Die Young. Yeah, it's really, really good. Walk Away is another great one. Love Walk Away. That To me, that's my underrated track on this album. It's a weird one because it almost has a bit of Bachman-Turner overdrive boogie to it, but it works. It's interesting and different. I, I really like it. And Lonely is the Word is a great closer. I'm not crazy about Lonely is the Word. It's good, but I like Walk Away better. Walk Away is a better song. Um, but uh, I don't mind <laughs> it. What was the one before Walk Away? Die Young. Die Young's just... No, and, oh, sorry, the one before Die Young. What was that? What are you pulling a no-no on me? No, I know. No, no. I'm, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> uh, wishing Well. Wishing, yeah, that you know, Wishing Well and Lonely is the Word are, to me are okay, but Die Young and um, Walk Away are great. Right. Yeah, those are the two best. On this album, yeah. I, I think if you, if you take away the two overheated cock grab and blues leftovers, it's basically one piece of shit jammed on each side. It's a perfect and complete piece of work. I believe that Dio steps up to the plate and changes the entire feel and characteristic of the band while not hijacking the intent of the vibe and undertone of the project i mean that's a magic trick in itself it's a classic album it's definitely recognized as such for good reason and for metal fans it's almost as recommendable as paranoid just in a different way i give it four and a quarter stars i give it four and three quarter nice Nice. I figured this one would be appealing for you. Neon Knights was a number 22 hit. I don't remember hearing it on the radio, though. Uh, and Die Young was a number 41 hit. Yeah, I don't remember it either. I just remember Heaven and Hell was like the hit. 1981, Mob Rules. Hey, we did it so great the first time. Let's not only do it again, but let's do it again almost exactly in the same way. And I don't even mind it in a weird way. Released in November 81, the second album with Dio. However, that was Bill Ward's last album. Heaven and Hell was was it. I think he comes back into the picture, though, right? Yeah, at some point he does. But not with the classic iteration. It's he No, comes I don't back. think he plays on Heaven and, uh, on Mob Rules. He, he played on Heaven and Hell. He's at Vinny Appice. He plays on Mob Rules. Correct. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, yeah, that, that's it for Bill. 
because Bill was out like like ten dates and then having Hell tour, he was out of the band. He played on the record about ten. He did about ten dates with Dio and having a Hell tour, and they bailed. He was had alcohol problems, a personal right, problem. Right. Buff Finian. If I'm not mistaken, like both of his parents died within six months. Back then, and, you know, he was so close to Ozzy, and they they made him fire Ozzy, and he didn't want to do it, you know, but they right. made him do it. And right. Him and Ozzy were so close. So he was going through a lot of heavy shit at the time. It seems to me like that him and Dio didn't really get along. Yeah, it sounds like he didn't really have uh, very much positive to say about this time. But if you didn't like the Dio era, God, you were in for a bumpy ride for the next 15 years. Yeah. All right, that just about does it. Thanks for joining us. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason. And be sure to stay tuned because this week, brings upon us another incredible episode of Discographies The Private Press with Paul Major, wherein you'll be introduced to a new world of music there's very little chance you've either heard or heard of before. And then this Thursday's wildcard episode features an episode of Rock Cousteau, wherein we excavate literally the greatest soundtrack of all time, Bruce Langhorn's The Hired Hand. Of course, as well, you'll want to tune in a week from today for Black Sabbath Part 4, as we invite Jim Florentine back for another round of Metal Mania, right here in the place to which you come to take your daily musical vitamins that one needs should one prefer to properly assess the tough calls that life throws your way. Stay gold, motherfuckers. It's Discography. Discography.